Hello and welcome to Judge a Blank by Its Cover, a Little City Library podcast. I'm Bolette. And I'm Pete. We're librarians at the Mary Riley Styles Public Library in the city of Falls Church. This is our media review podcast where we attempt to predict what a material is about based on the cover. We prejudged and watched the 2012 film Holy Motors, directed by Leos Carax, and have posted a photo of the poster on our Instagram page at Little City Library for you to check out so you can judge right along with us. Pete, based on the cover, what is your best guess of what today's film is about? All right, well, let me start by saying that this is quite a poster. This poster is what drew me to wanting to do this film. Looking at this picture, my eyes are drawn to the woman in the center. And this woman is posing in what appears to be a pink latex bodysuit with lights on it and matching high heels. She's backlit by what seem to be a pair of headlights. The title of the film appears in large slanted neon green sign text across the top. After processing this, I noticed the Eiffel Tower in the background in a misty evening landscape lit by streetlights. There's a greenish yellowish hue to the landscape that blends well with the green sign. Looking again, I notice that the streetscape is slanted at the same angle as the neon title. After reading the title, Holy Motors, and looking back at the central female figure, it occurs to me that she is posing much like a vintage car hood ornament, mini statue. After taking all this in, I'm shocked to see among the names at the bottom of the poster, Eva Mendez and Kylie Minogue. (laughs) These are the only names I recognize on the poster. Meditating on this stylish yet oddly dressed woman in conjunction with Paris makes me think of the high fashion scene. The slanted nighttime landscape evokes a gritty street level version of haute couture that is somehow related to car theft, perhaps. Maybe cars are stolen and the money used to finance guerrilla fashion projects. <laughs> but what is holy about it and where do Mendez and Minogue fit in? I'm left mostly puzzled and also intrigued. Fantastic. All <laughs> right. <laughs> what did you get out of the poster, Bullet? Okay. At first look, what stands out most on this poster is the title of the film. As you said, it's lit up in neon green fluorescent lighting. It made me think of Vegas or a CD motel sign from a movie. Beyond that, there is the person, arms stretched back, and behind them, back severely arched like a gymnast who stuck their landing. They're wearing a spandex pink suit with glowing Mosher caption markers dispersed on it. A bright patch of light glows behind them, making them the focal point. This person stands before the Eiffel Tower, which almost echoes their posture, where it stands erect in the background. But this was a tough one for me. When I saw it, I didn't really know what to pull from it. But the CGI motion capture suit makes me think spectacle. So this person is a spectacle. Their life is a spectacle. Perhaps they are disassociated from reality in some way or living a reality that's not quite like what we know. The gymnast pose can further articulate that with the idea that this person is always putting on a show or entertaining. I'll take a shot and say it's set in Paris as well. Well done, Bled. Well Thank done. you. We haven't mentioned what it's actually about yet, but this is the closest I've ever gotten to getting one right. <laughs> this is a tough one. Bled, do you want to tell us uh, what this film is actually about? I will try. This is a tough film. The French film released in 2012, like we said, and boy, there's just a lot here. Canopy's description was, join Monsieur Oscar, played by Denis Levant, on his rollicking soulful journey by limousine through the streets of Paris as he transforms into multiple characters for a series of mysterious appointments. The director melds monster movie, film noir, romantic drama, musical, crime thriller, and anime in his mirthful mind-bending masterwork. Holy Motors is a ravishing fever dream of becoming, unraveling, and starting all over again. And I think especially that last line, fever dream of becoming, unraveling, and starting all over again, pretty good description of it. 
What I saw was basically, we have this character, Monsieur Oscar. He's an actor who gets a stack of assignments and then spends the rest of his day in a limo going from job to job where he does his own makeup, he does his own costumes, and performs for audiences that aren't there. No audience that I could see, at least. And these performances are elaborate, sometimes disturbing, definitely unusual. You can't predict what's going to happen in most cases. And the only consistency I felt in the film was the limo and his chauffeur, because it breaks up all of these basically he goes and does a job he comes back to the limo he goes and does a job he comes back to the limo it's the only thing you can count on and the rest is just up for grabs yeah i think that's a a pretty good description and in terms of the characters i mean you already really mentioned them already it's the (laughs) monsieur oscar and his chauffeur named celine and monsieur oscar played by dennis lavant is really the whole film and he plays 11 roles and i'll read the names of the roles in my terrible french monsieur oscar who we already mentioned le banquier le mendiant Le OS de la motion capture, Monsieur Merde, perhaps the most colorful character. Yeah. Le père, le cordianiste, le tueur, le tué, the killer and the killed. Le mourant, l'homme au foyer. He plays all these different roles, and they are very different roles, indeed. And then I already mentioned Kylie Minogue and Eva Mendez, who each play a role in one of these 11 sort of skits that takes place. And there's other actors who take part in these different roles, which we can go more into. But really, it's all on this one guy who I guess is a favorite of the director, Leos Carax, who I would mention also appears in the film in the opening scene. There's a man in what appears to be a hotel room that's next to an airport, and he wakes up and gets out of bed and then literally opens a door in the wall and walks into a movie theater. He opens the door in the wall with a key that is made from his finger. (laughs) Right. As if that wasn't strange enough. So this film, I think, can be really frustrating if you approach it as we tend to approach books and music and film and just try to figure it out if it doesn't immediately make sense. But some things it's helpful to know about, like, for example, this opening scene, I read an article about this film in The New Yorker, and the critic Richard Brody explained that this is the first film the director made in 13 years. And so having him get out of bed and then walk through a wall into a movie theater was sort of symbolizing his Mm. return to theater. But I think that a lot of the other stuff that happens in the film, no matter how much you read about it, I don't know if it's going to really help you understand it. You have to just kind of experience it. So what was your experience of the film, Bolette? Okay, my experience. Boy, it was just a roller coaster. And I had a pretty similar experience in each of these mini narratives, right? We'd start out and I would think, oh, this is actually, this is kind of cool. You know, we got to the CGI part and he's doing CGI by himself and he looks like he's fighting. It's like, actually, this is kind of cool. And then it got really weird and I wasn't so on board anymore. I was like, what is happening? And then I got back on board when we got to this crazy looking guy with the cloudy eyes eating flowers in a graveyard while he furiously smoked a cigarette. (laughs) as he like ran through him and then he ended up at this photo shoot the photographer was like I must photograph him and he sent his assistant over and then this guy bit off her fingers and I'm like you lost me again film (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with bizarre for bizarre's sake in a lot of ways and I really enjoyed that part and then we hit a point and it was almost like bizarre to push boundaries and Mm. then I'm not so on board with it yeah I see what you're saying. 
So I watched it twice just to try to see if I could <laughs> understand it more the second time. And I did appreciate it more, I guess, because maybe some of the shock. I was almost dizzy watching it going from yeah. these different little skits that were so bizarre and different. And there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of graphic nudity, which I was kind of surprised to see, but can it be actually censored, which some people complained oh. about in the comments, but we can get to that later. But just watching it a second time, I was able to see some themes in it. You know, we mentioned the violence. There's a lot of sort of life, death and rebirth and like reinvention. Obviously, there's an actor who's taking on all these different roles. And then the acting, I think, is kind of the central thing. This guy's an actor and he's taking on these different roles, but it's also that we're all actors in our lives. We take on different roles and we see different things and act differently accordingly. This is a, another quote from that New Yorker article. The actor who leaves home in the morning to the halcyon calls of wife and children is already in costume and acting and he re returns home at night to give another kind of performance. So I thought that was a pretty good summation. I think it's also a film about the changing nature of cinema. As you mentioned, the beginning scene shows a, the director looking at a film in a theater and there's a lot of homages to cinema. There's scenes from silent cinema, which I guess this director is a big fan of in the opening credits and also in the end. And I believe there are a couple interspersed in the film as well. And obviously, you know, we've gone from big movie cameras to everything digital, and now everyone's carrying around a camera. And there's a conversation that Monsieur Oscar has with another man who seems to be his employer in this limousine that takes him to his appointment which is sort of about the craft of acting and how it's changing and how Oscar has nostalgia for the sort of the old days. So there's a little bit about that self-awareness and the history of cinema and where it's going now. And then, you know, you already mentioned Cloudy-Eyed Ogre, who is named <laughs> Monsieur Merde, which we won't translate. He steals Eva Mendez and drags her down into the sewer, <laughs> although she comes sort of like, not she willingly, she doesn't really fight it. Yeah. She's a mannequin, almost totally nonplussed, as he throws her over his shoulder and takes her down to the sewer where they hang out for a while. Yeah, he eats some of her hair. Um, oh boy, does he eat a lot of her hair. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually before he takes her down, the, the photographer's assistant says, you know, have you ever seen Diane Arbus? Who, you know, I had to like Google and look at some of the pictures, but I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. The kind of juxtaposition of beauty and oddness or hideousness and their relationship. And then the last thing I would mention, which becomes more evident as the movie goes on, is the toll that art takes on the artists. You know, as this guy, he's got 11 appointments in the day and he's just exhausted and he's kind of complaining at times and his chauffeur is trying to get him to eat, but it's like he's too tired to eat and he's just smoking and drinking. And there's a lot of smoking. I feel like that's a hallmark of French movies. There's a ton of smoking. And he just seems so, you know, like he's really giving everything to these roles, uh, which are not easy roles to play. Mm -hmm. So that, that's sort of what I put together but it was a strenuous watch for sure. <laughs> yeah. Kind of on those last two points you had, actually, I think in that scene with this employer, whoever in the limo, he mentioned something along the lines of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And then I think it kind of plays off this idea of, well, what if there is no more beholder? This idea of artists without anyone to view the art or what is it for? Or is it enough for it to be art for art's sake? Or is it truly an experience for others? 
And then I also saw themes of escalation where things would grow to a point and then kind of explode and then cycles, mini stories with beginning, middles and ends that echo, I think, the creative process too. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I was reading an article in Senses of Cinema, which is an online cinema magazine, and there was this profile of Leos Carax, the director, and it said, he opens up possible worlds to be inhabited for a limited time with no need for a full understanding of whatever happens, as in life itself. And I mean, that's an interesting idea to think about watching a movie like you were maybe walking down a street in New York and you see several things that are just crazy and don't make sense to you, but it's real life. So you're not going to try to make sense of them. You're just going to keep walking. And I don't know if I'm able to watch a movie like that, because when I sit down to watch a movie, I'm expecting a package with a beginning, middle and end that will have some kind of meaning or promise to and fulfill giving me some kind of experience. And this does that. It's just not easy to define what it is. Or digest. Yeah. Do you want to talk about some of these mini narratives, these characters? First of all, I'll say that I think the actor does a wonderful job. Dennis Levant, oh, yes. There's one scene in which he's playing an older gentleman who's passing away and his niece is with him. We are only in this scene for what, maybe seven to 10 minutes? And the amount of emotion he builds up in that scene, we know he's just a guy going from place to place playing characters. And yet the scene feels really, at least I felt like it was very emotional. I absolutely agree. And that scene where he's playing Le Mourant, the dying man, is so powerful. And I think it was brilliantly placed towards the end of the film because it's after you've seen a lot of these really shocking things like the aforementioned scene with Monsieur Merd and the strange motion capture scene. And then this one is like very sweet and understated and poignant. You know, it's like a kind of like a tearjerker scene that would happen at the end of a movie between a man and his niece. And they're talking about mostly her life and the sacrifices she made. And we don't know really exactly what they're talking Talking about, but it's really powerful. And it's it just goes to show the range of, of this actor. And I guess really to underscore the craft of acting, you know, it's more than just being a pretty face. And, and Dennis Levan is definitely not conventionally attractive, but he is incredibly adept and capable as an actor. He can do these scenes where he's running on a treadmill, shooting a machine gun and shouting. And then he can also do these scenes where he's causing you to tear up when he's talking on his deathbed. Yeah, and that scene is especially interesting to me because he's playing this character and he passes. The moment kind of comes to a crescendo of her being upset and then kind of like, well, excuse me, I need to get up. You know, and he <laughs> breaks this moment and it's almost magical the way he breaks it and she like remains there with her head on the bed upset as he leaves and they almost have this, it was a pleasure to work with you experience as he's leaving the room, which that should destroy everything that's happened and it only made it more beautiful to me. <laughs> yeah, and I've never acted in anything. You know, I was like a bit part in a school play. Oh, I don't play. know. You've been in a lot of my films. Okay, I have been in some library social media posts, but I've never been in something where I felt like I was inhabiting a character. And I wondered what it feels like to be a real actor and to really get to know your character and to live in them and so forth and, and to get to know other people who are playing roles. That scene would have you believe that it's not just something you can hop in and out of. 
You hear stories about actors becoming emotionally caught up and, and having a hard time based on some of these roles that they've played. And this movie can definitely make you understand why that might be. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of interesting scenes in this. What is the most bizarre moment that you can think of just off the top of your head? Well, I'd have to go to the Merd scene. I mean, mm -hmm. the whole thing, it's just, it seems to get more and more outrageous. This guy's physical appearance, he's got red hair, a red goatee. He's got a cloudy eye. He's got these long witch-like fingernails. He's got a cane, like he's some kind of messed up leprechaun or something. Green goes, suit, yeah. Green suit. He goes into the sewer. He comes out. He's in a graveyard. And something funny about the graveyard, all of the gravestones are advertising the deceased's websites. Let's like visit my website at yeah. such and such a place. <laughs> so it's like, okay. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, he bites off the assistant to the fashion photographer's fingers. They go down into the sewer and he's carrying her. He's eating money. He's furiously smoking cigarettes. He's eating Eva Mendez's hair. And then he dresses her up. He refashions her dress and dresses her in a burqa, at which point he takes off his clothes. He got full frontal nudity, which they did sort of blur out. And then he lays down, puts his head in Eva Mendez's laps and sort of sprinkles flowers oh, over yeah. himself, which he had formerly been eating in the graveyard. And so I saw that and I just thought about the juxtaposition between the hideous and the beautiful. And it made me think of a, a tableau vivant, you know, this thing people, I guess, would do in the Victorian age where they would get together and try to recreate a famous painting or something like that. This isn't a painting that anyone's ever painted, but it certainly looked like, <laughs> like, like a modern work of art of realist, but surrealist art. So yeah, that scene and also the, the motion capture, whatever they were doing oh, yeah. was really shocking in the beginning uh -huh. it's it's hard to even put into words you really would have to see it for yourself dear listener really? what about you Bolette? was there anything besides those two scenes that made you question what was going on Oh, there are a lot of things that made me question what was going on. But I think one of the moments was one of the very last ones before his end of night, where he goes home to his family. And you kind of think the movie is wrapping up a little bit. And it is. But it's some kind of monkey that comes downstairs, not his wife. And they have a baby monkey. And they go up and look out the window together. I mean... I had watched this whole movie. I knew I couldn't at all predict what would happen next. And I saw this scene and I was like, well, you just proved it again. I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> That's one that got me at the end. One of my favorites, not particularly bizarre or shocking, but I really did enjoy the accordion number in the middle. Yeah, um, and, and that was during the intermission, which is another throwback to earlier cinema as well. Yeah, I guess one of the other interesting scenes that felt different, but maybe not necessarily as bizarre, but... The scene where he's playing a father picking up his daughter from a party and they start having this conversation and she says she had a great time and turns out that she didn't. She was hiding in the bathroom the whole time and they get into a weird argument about her lying to him and that scene felt different than a lot of the other ones. I agree and in kind of the same way that the scene with the dying man and his niece, it was a very like earnest, very realistic, dramatic portrayal of something that you feel like you could actually see in real life and that scene is mm -hmm. also very sad. 
sad because yes. they didn't have a very good relationship. The daughter was troubled and the father was having a hard time understanding her and not really treating her in a nurturing way, just kind of reinforcing the problems that she had with her self-esteem. Yeah, that was kind of shocking in its realism because a lot of the surrealism that precedes it, you aren't prepared for something that's more normal. As we've said, they've discontinued the comments on Canopy, but they're keeping the old comments. Oh, okay. And so we, we get to continue doing this beloved section of the podcast where I read people's Canopy comments. <laughs> I chose this comment from David, the, the Capital Area District Libraries, because I feel like it's a good comment for probably, I think, the way a lot of people, myself included, might initially interact with this movie. I'll just read it. David Lynch once said that to make a movie, you just had to get a bunch of ideas. And once you had 100 or so, then you had a movie. Turns out he was wrong. As pure entertainment, this quote-unquote movie is not much worse than flipping through cable TV for two hours. Dennis Levant is an incredible performer without a doubt. Some of the ideas would have made slightly above average commercials. But unlike in a Lynch movie, where you can feel there is some kind of underlying purpose, even if you can't quite place it, this movie is clearly just a series of skits stitched together by a thin derivative conceit. Some were more convincing than others, none were important in any way on any level, and the sum was even less than the parts. You could put this on in the background while you do housework and not miss anything. In fact, that would probably make it better. It's one of those movies that makes you sad to be alive today. You'll regret watching it the more you think about it. Assuming you ever think about anything other than yourself. Ouch, that is such a painful <laughs> and pointed criticism. I have to disagree with the last bit about the more you think about it, the more you'll regret it. I maybe regretted it more watching it and thinking back on it, I'm a little more fond. I agree. Having watched it twice, I enjoyed it more the second time. I chose that review because I think that in the same way that you might be at a loss if you try to figure out what's going on in a David Lynch film, especially one like Eraserhead, you'll be in as much or more of a loss if you try to understand this film. And I guess it's not really the way to approach it. One of the things that I read in an interview with Leos Carax that was on IndieWire was that he thinks children understand this movie more than adults do, which I thought was interesting. Not like I would ever take my kids to see this movie because <laughs> of the amount of violence. Oh, yeah. But that may be true. They may just see it as like a series of like funny and interesting and weird things that happen rather than trying to look for the narrative arc. Yeah. message. Yeah, I think there is something to be said about experiencing each of the individual arcs as its own story within this larger frame. Here you go, Pete. I'm going to pitch you an idea for a podcast, okay? You watch Holy Motors every week for a year and do a podcast after you watch it each time and tell us what you got from it. I think I would have no problem creating that content. There's so much in this movie and there's so much to talk about that you, know, you could at least do a podcast about each of the 11 skits in the movie. That's how different they are. And each one of them is kind of fully realized, fully fleshed out. So, okay, you know, if the fans demand it, then, then we will do it. Oh, we, hold on, hold on. It was a personal pitch for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Blair, who do you think got closer in their coverage okay. judgment? Okay, well, I'm going to come in strong this time and confident and say I think I finally did it. I think I finally nailed one. You won this one. You're a clear winner this month. Sometimes I'm a little waffly on, well, that's kind of here or there, but um, I feel good about this win. Yeah, because you said something about acting, right? What was it? Yeah, well, because the CGI motion capture suit made me think spectacle. Um, how so there, you recognize that as a CGI motion capture suit? If you've ever watched anything with Lord of the Rings, you see Gollum in a CGI motion capture suit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. That's where you've gone wrong, Pete. Not enough Lord of the Rings in your life. But looking at that, I got this idea of spectacle. And I don't know if I actually said the word acting, but putting on a show and entertaining because of the gymnastics pose when they land at the end of whatever floor routine. At least that's what I saw in it. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about acting and it's about the behind the scenes of it, but also the way it appears on the screen. So congratulations. My idea for underworld fashion shows might make a good movie, but it was not this movie. Blood, do you recommend this film? I loved the concept of this, of a man whose job it is somehow to become other people throughout the day without any real purpose that I can see aside from like existential, metaphorical, symbolistic reasons, like because art type things. So I really liked that. And there were parts of it where I thought, oh, maybe it went a little far for me or it went to that bizarre to push boundaries side of things. But I'd say I would recommend this, but only to people who think of themselves as an artist, maybe, who have a more intricate relationship with art, perhaps. It definitely feels like a self-conscious. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And <clears throat> I think this isn't a film I would recommend to just anyone and, it, and also no. not just at any time. I think that this would be a good film if you're going through a really like boring spell in your life, not a lot of stuff is happening, and maybe you've consumed a lot of genre fiction that's sort of formulaic or something, or you just read some classic that was really hard, but you kind of already knew the story, and you really need something to shake it up, something completely different and something odd, then I would recommend this to you. But it's not, you know, in the turbulent times that we've been living through, it's kind of like a tough watch because some of the imagery is shocking and also because you have to do a lot of thinking and grappling or maybe trying not to think which is maybe huh. even harder than thinking <laughs> so you're thinking like a palate cleanser for your bland life well if your palate is too cleansed and it's just mm -hmm. like you just been having tapioca and applesauce and you need some you know really fancy french meal that's two square centimeters but has every single flavor in the world that's what this is. Although it's not two square centimeters. It's much longer than a normal movie. I think it's almost two hours, right? It is two hours, yeah. Yeah, so this is another one we can thank Pete for bringing into our lives. If we watch it and it seems insane, I can almost guarantee that Pete picked it. <laughs> You know, I picked this movie. It was on Rolling Stone's top 50 movies of the 2010s. And I just never heard of it. I'd at least heard of almost everything else on that list. And I was like, oh, what is this? And of course, it had the picture of Monsieur Merd, like eating the flowers running through the cemetery, which is such a striking image. I just wanted to know who that guy was and what he was doing. Why is he eating those flowers? And, and do I still you know? don't really know yeah. <laughs> the answer is no. So. I definitely think there were positive things in this film. And I think it, it's an artistic endeavor that I appreciate. But like you said, it's not for everybody. And it's not for every time. Yeah. Or it could be like a bonding experience, you know. Not <laughs> or exactly a drinking like... game. <laughs> yeah. The next time something crazy happens that you can't explain, have a sip. You'll um, die. <laughs>
I was looking through Reddit on this, actually, and one of the users said, even if you're expecting the unexpected, you won't be able to predict half of what happens in this film. And I think that's true. That is absolutely true. The unexpected is a wide universe, and Leos Carax is good at exploring it. Before we tune out, we want to give special thanks to the band Zombie Zombie for giving us permission to use their song Psychic Harmonia 2 in our intro and outro. You'll hear that catchy tune in just a moment, but for now, thanks for joining us for Judge a Blank by its cover, a Little City Library podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Bullette. Don't forget to join us next month. In the meantime, for what it's worth, you have our permission to keep on judging. We have 40 minutes here, so... Oh, we've got plenty. Our podcasts are getting longer and longer because you're <laughs> picking weirder and weirder stuff. <laughs> this poster was really good, though, right? I mean, this poster, poster begged to be analyzed.